invite you to turn in your copy of God's Word to 2 Samuel chapter 14. 2 Samuel 14 will be our passage today as we continue in our study of God's Word. And we've come to the point now in 2 Samuel where uh, the Lord's Word to David through Nathan have come to fruition. You may recall just a couple of chapters ago when Nathan confronted David on his sin of adultery and murder, that he gave him that word from the Lord that the sword would never depart from his house because he had despised the Lord and what he had done. And now the sword has come. David's oldest son has violated and his half-sister Tamar and Tamar's brother Absalom then plotted uh, and eventually enacted a plan to have him murdered. And now Absalom has fled and has remained in exile from David for three years out of fear for his own life uh, for the actions that he had done that led to his brother's death. But in today's passage, as you can probably see from the, the heading there on 2 Samuel 14, Absalom is coming home. But this will be no celebration and no grand homecoming. It will be further evidence of the, the ripple effects of sin in David's life and now in his son's life. And it will be a lesson for us. Uh, not one is an example that we are to follow, but an example that we are to learn from. A lesson in, in what true reconciliation involves and, and what's required to have genuine reconciliation. And what we see missing in this passage today, we see fulfilled in the gospel of Jesus. And so we're going to begin by reading chapter 14 in its entirety. And so I want to invite you, out of reverence for God's word, if you're able to, to stand as I read this text for us. 2 Samuel 14, beginning in verse 1, this is what the word of God says. Now Joab, the son of Zariah, knew that the king's heart went out to Absalom. And Joab sent to Tekoa and brought from there a wise woman and said to her, Pretend to be a mourner and put on mourning garments. Do not anoint yourself with oil, but behave like a woman who has been mourning many days for the dead. Go to the king and speak thus to him. So Joab put the words in her mouth. And when the woman of Tekoa came to the king, she fell on her face to the ground and paid homage and said, Save me, O king. The king said to her, What is your trouble? She answered, Alas, I am a widow. My husband is dead. And your servant had two sons, and they quarreled with one another in the field. There was no one to separate them, and one struck the other and killed him. Now the whole clan has risen against your servant, and they say, Give up the man who struck his brother, that we may put him to death for the life of his brother whom he killed. So they would destroy the air also. Thus they would quench my coal that is left and to leave my husband neither name nor remnant on the face of the earth. Then the king said to the woman, Go to your house and I will give orders concerning you. And the woman of Tekoa said to the king, On me be the guilt, my lord the king, and on my father's house let the king and his throne be guiltless. The king said, If anyone says anything to you, bring him to me and he shall... Never touch you again. Then she said, Please let the king invoke the Lord your God that the avenger of blood kill no more and my son not be destroyed. 
And he said, As the Lord lives, not a hair on your son shall fall to the ground. Then the woman said, Please let your servant speak a word to my lord the king. And he said, Speak. And the woman said, Why then have you planned such a thing against the people of God? For in giving this decision, the king convicts himself. Inasmuch as the king does not bring his banished one home again, we all must die. We are like water spilled on the ground, which cannot be gathered up again. But God will not take away life, and he devises means so that the banished one will not remain an outcast. Now I have to come to say, this is my Lord the King, because the people have made me afraid. And your servant thought, I will speak to the King. It may be that the King will perform the request of his servant. For the King will hear and deliver his servant from the hand of the man who would destroy me and my son together from the heritage of the Lord. And your servant thought, the word of my Lord the King will set me at rest. For my Lord the King is like an angel of God to discern good and evil. The Lord your God be with you. Then the king answered the woman, Do not hide anything that I ask you. The woman said, Let the Lord my king speak. The king said, Is the hand of Joab with you in all this? The woman answered and said, As surely as you live, my lord the king, one cannot turn to the right hand or the left from anything that my lord the king has said. It was your servant Joab who commanded me, it was he who put all these words in the mouth of your servant. In order to change the course of things, your servant Joab did this. But my Lord has wisdom, like the wisdom of the angel of God, to know all things that are on the earth. Then the king said to Joab, Behold now, I grant this. Go bring back the young man Absalom. And Joab fell on his face to the ground and paid homage and blessed the king. And Joab said, Today your servant knows that I have found favor in your sight, my lord the king, and that the king has granted the request of his servant. So Joab arose and went to Geshur and brought Absalom to Jerusalem. And the king said, Let him dwell apart in his own house. He is not to come into my presence. So Absalom lived apart in his own house and did not come into the king's presence. Now in all Israel, there was no one so much to be praised for his handsome appearance as Absalom. From the sole of his foot to the crown of his head, there was no blemish in him. And when he cut the hair of his head, for at the end of every year he used to cut it. When it was heavy on him, he cut it. He weighed the hair on his head, 200 shekels by the king's weight. There were born to Absalom three sons, one daughter whose name was Tamar. She was a beautiful woman. So Absalom lived two years in Jerusalem without coming into the king's presence. Then Absalom sent for Joab to send him to the king, but Joab would not come to him. He sent a second time, but Joab would not come. Then he said to his servants, See, Joab's field is next to mine, and he has barley there. Go and set it on fire. So Absalom's servants set the field on fire. Then Joab arose and went to Absalom at his house and said to him, why have your servants set my field on fire? Absalom answered Joab, Behold, I sent word to you, come here, that I may send you to the king to ask, Why have I come from Geshur? It would have been better for me to still be there. Now therefore, let me go into the presence of the king. And if there is guilt in me, let him put me to death. 
And Joab went to the king and told him, and he summoned Absalom. So he came to the king and bowed himself on his face to the ground before the king. And the king kissed Absalom. He would pray with me. Father, we do pray as we consider your word today that you would teach us, that you would train us, that you would call us to action, to repentance and faith, that you would help us to see what it means to be genuinely reconciled to you through Christ. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. As we've already mentioned today, uh, this afternoon we have uh, an interest meeting for folks who are considering going to Poland. And as I was thinking about that meeting today, I was thinking about my own family and our involvement in Poland. Uh, since we came here 11 years ago, uh, someone from our family, in many years, the majority of our family, has gone to Poland in the summer. And it's a, it's a partnership we love. It's one we're heavily invested in. Um, and we're thankful and praying that God will give us the opportunity, at least some of us, to go back from our family this next summer. But as I was thinking about Poland and those trips, I was thinking about how uh, in those earlier years when Sandy would go with Parker and then with Vivian and eventually Anna Claire, how Caroline and I, and when the other girls were at home, we would uh, miss them greatly. Uh, we would long to see them again. Uh, we would count down literally the days and then the hours and even the minutes until... Uh, that plane arrived in Louisville, and there we were waiting for them to get off the plane and, and to embrace them and, and to have them home again. Uh, Caroline would sit down and would make signs, and uh, those signs would you know, read, Welcome Home, and we'd, we'd hold the signs up there at the airport, and when we would uh, see Sandy and the other kids kind of at the distance, we were excited and elated and, and couldn't wait to embrace them. Uh, you've probably if you've spent any time in an airport, you've seen a scene like that. Even if you've not been in an airport now, you may see signs in, in people's yards, you know, welcome home, an indication of a homecoming, of a, a celebration when someone's been gone uh, on a long trip, whether it be a great distance or a great time. A family that is excited to see them, excited for them to be home again. We've all seen that, but we don't see that in this passage today. Absalom has been gone for years, and now he will come home, but uh, he will not come home to a celebration. Uh, he will not come home to welcome home signs. He'll come home to a father who essentially says he never wants to see him again. He, he can come to my city, but he can't come to my presence. It's another reminder for us of the absolute mess we see in David's family. It's a reminder to us of the ripple effects of sin. It's a reminder to us, it's an example to us to, to learn from, but certainly not one for us to follow. But there is stuff for us to learn here, and so we're going to look at this passage and, and what we might learn from it. And again, I, I think it points us <laughs> in the direction of seeing what, what it looks like to, to do things the right way, what it looks like to truly be reconciled to God as we consider David and his son, who, who aren't truly reconciled in this passage. So we'll begin there with the first point in your outline and seeing how all these events come together with this. Point one, we see Joab schemes to reconcile David and Absalom. He puts together this, this scheme, this plan to see them 
reconciled. Now, at first glance, uh, 2 Samuel 14 uh, looks a lot like 2 Samuel 12 in that there's a story told to David to make a point to move him to action. In 2 Samuel 12, that's when David has sinned with Bathsheba and against Uriah he has uh, been involved in adultery and he has been a murderer and God sends Nathan to him. And Nathan tells him the story of a rich man and a poor man and how that rich man steals the only sheep of the poor man and this enrages David and it, it brings him to action and that action really leads to a change of heart when he realizes that Nathan had brought a story from the Lord in order to change his heart and to help him see his own sin, which then leads him to repentance and a change of heart. Now, 2 Samuel 14 is a bit different than that. Joab has not been sent by the Lord. Joab does not bring a word from the Lord. Joab arranges all of this by his own initiative. And we don't know a lot of the reasons why. And we read in verse 1 that Joab notices that the king's heart went out to Absalom. But that translation's not very precise in that when you really look at what the Hebrew says there, it essentially is saying that the king was thinking about Absalom, that, that Absalom was on his mind. And so when you read this chapter and you see how he responds to Absalom when he comes back to Jerusalem and how he says, I don't want him in his, my presence... Well, then that helps us to understand in that very first verse that it's not so much that David here is just longing to see his son. Now, the context here is that his son's on his mind. Again, perhaps David is just considering the ripple effects of his own sin, considering how his adultery and his murder would then be lived out in the lives of his sons, considering how his son, the next in line for the throat, was throne was murdered by another son and just the, the absolute chaos there and this stuff weighs heavy on his mind and so Joab wants David and Absalom to reconcile now again the passage doesn't really tell us why at this point Absalom was the next one in line to the throne and it could be that that Joab not only as a family member of David, but as the commander of his army, that, that he's thinking about the kingdom, and he's thinking about that transition of power that will one day come, and he's thinking about how that's not going to be a very smooth transition if Joab's in exile living somewhere else, and, and perhaps for whatever reason, he, he just wants these two men to reconcile and to be back together again. He doesn't come to David with a message from the Lord. He comes to David with a scheme. He comes to him with a lie. He comes to him with deception. He comes to him to manipulate him in order to have him and his son reconcile. And so we see how 2 Samuel 12 and 2 Samuel 14, in that sense, are very different. Because in 2 Samuel 12, that the Lord uses Nathan to tell a story to the king to change his heart and bring him to repentance. But in 2 Samuel 14, we see here that the Joab, not the Lord, that Joab uses someone, and he uses this woman of Tekoa as a deceiver, as a liar, to make up a story to manipulate David in order to change his mind and his actions. And so under Joab's instruction, this woman from Tekoa lies to David. She tells him 
that she's a grieving widow. She tells them that she has two sons, and the story she tells isn't very original. It's straight out of Genesis 4. It's Cain and Abel. You might wonder, Joab didn't seem very original. He just went back in the history of his people and thought, well, here, here's one, we'll use this. And so she essentially tells the story of Cain and Abel and says, well, these are my boys. And they're out in a field, and there was nobody to intervene, and nobody to break them up, and, and one killed the other. And essentially what she's saying is now, now that, that one who was the murderer, who's responsible for his brother's death, now, now he's in safe keeping, safe hiding, but the entire community, they, they want me to hand him over so that there can be justice. They want me to hand him over so that they can punish him. And that punishment's going to be death. She pleads her case before the king as if this were true and notes that she's a widow. And in that context, in that culture, as a widow, her, her sons would have had the inheritance of the father who's dead. And now one son is dead and one son's left. And if that son is killed and is murdered, then there's no one left. And all that was of her husband's household is going to go to someone else and she'll be left with nothing. So she's pleading her case before David. Again, in order to change his mind. This was the scheme of Joab, and it appears that the scheme works. Because the king, as he listens to this woman's story, he begins to discern that she's not being altogether that honest with him. He begins to discern that something's going on here. And you'll notice the accolade she's throwing out there to David. You know, he's at the wisdom of an angel. He's at the wisdom of God. He knows all these things, and... He starts to figure out something's not adding up here. And then he just asks her directly, did Joab put you up to this? Now that indicates to us that Joab had had conversations already with David. That it's likely that Joab had pleaded with David during the years that Absalom was in exile, that, that he had pleaded with him. You, you've got to make this right. You've got to bring him home. They probably have multiple conversations about this at which point David was unwilling to budge and unwilling to do anything. And so when this plan comes before him, it doesn't take much for David to figure out, well, this was Joab's hand. But then for whatever reason, he, he relents. It seems the plan has worked. Verse 21, the king calls for Joab and tells him to bring Absalom home. And Joab pays homage to the king. He blesses the king. It appears that his plan has worked. He wanted Absalom to come home. He wanted David and Absalom to reconcile. And so now Absalom's going to come home, but there's a problem. The problem is this, point two. Absalom returns, but, but he and David do not reconcile. So Joab goes to get sure to bring Absalom home. Now again, we, we don't know a lot of the details here, but what we do know is that Absalom had spent years in exile in hiding from his father. He had gone to a territory outside of his father's jurisdiction. He had gone to a relative's home, and he had gone there expressly for the purpose of staying away from his father and the punishment that was rightly due him for ordering the murder of his brother. And so you can't help but wonder during that time if Absalom wasn't always looking over his shoulder. If he wasn't always thinking that a day of reckoning was coming. And if that's the case, then imagine what it would have been for him to look off in the distance and to see what was probably an entourage coming toward him. That, 
Joab probably didn't go on this mission on his own. He probably had other soldiers with him. It was a long journey. For Absalom to look and see this small army coming towards him and then to recognize that the leader of that small army was none other than the commander of his father's army, Joab. And you can imagine what he was probably thinking at that point. (laughs) My time's up. My hiding's over. Judgment has come. It's over. This is it. And then for Joab to come to him and to help him to see. No, he wasn't there to kill him. He wasn't there to bring justice to him. He was there to bring him home. Well, then Absalom's heart and mind would have gone a total different direction, perhaps towards excitement and elation that that finally he could go home. Finally, he could be back where he was from. Perhaps he was thinking about what it might be to, to be there with his father, to be reconciled to his father. Perhaps he had gathered from Joab that Joab was there by order of the king. I'm sure that that would have brought some excitement to him. He's going home, and his father had ordered for him to go home. But whatever excitement he would have had would have changed quickly when he realized that the king had given an edict. And that edict was, he can come to my city, but he can't come to my house. He, he can go to his own house. He, he can be here in Jerusalem, but he can't come to my table. He can't come to my home. He can't come into my presence. There would be no welcome home signs for Absalom. There would be no celebration for him. I mean, years have passed. But there would be no reconciliation. And so he returns, but David and he do not reconcile. David gives that order. He is not to come into my presence. And now two more years go by. So just consider this timeline. You know, Absalom spent three years in exile. And now he comes back to Jerusalem. Now two more years have gone by. It's been five years since David and Absalom have seen one another. It's been five years since there's been even any thing close to reconciliation between the two. And now Absalom wants to have a presence with his father. He, he wants, in fact, he, he is demanding the opportunity to go before his father, the king. And he knows in order for this to happen that he's going to need Joab. And so he calls for Joab, and he wants Joab to come to be a, a middleman of sorts to get him in pre- the presence of his father. The problem is, Joab doesn't want to have anything to do with it. And so he calls for him a second time, and he still doesn't want to have anything to do with it. And so then we see Absalom here do to Joab what Joab had done to David. <laughs> that the schemer gets schemed. And so Absalom tells his servants to go and to light Joab's field on fire. Now, just a side note here. Absalom appeared to have some pretty ruthless servants, you know. I mean, earlier we saw him say to his servants, now when my brother is merry with wine when he's drunk, y'all go kill him. And they say, okay, we'll do that. And here he says, okay, uh, I want you to go set this field on. Okay, we'll, we'll go do that. <laughs> I mean, they're, they're just ruthless. Now that tells you a little bit about Absalom, the people he surrounded himself with. But, but that aside, they, they, they do what he asks. They set the field on fire. Well, that gets Joab's attention as it would get most of our attention. And Joab then comes to Absalom and wants to understand what's going on here. Why why did your servants 
come set my field on fire. And then Joab realizes that Absalom was just doing to him what he had done to David. He was just manipulating him. He was just scheming. He was deceiving in order to get him to do what he wanted him to do. And he set the field on fire to get him there so that he would then have that opportunity to tell him, I want you to go arrange this meeting with the king. And if Joab was still reluctant at this point, perhaps Absalom threatened to do worse. We don't know. But at this point, uh, Joab does what he said. Verse 33 tells us, Then Joab went to the king and told him, and he summoned Absalom. So he came to the king and bowed himself on his face to the ground before the king, and the king kissed Absalom. Now this likely would have happened in the king's court, that there would have been other people present for this. And these other people present for this, these onlookers, they, they would have an idea of what's been going on. They, they would have been very familiar with the story. They would have known what had happened to Amnon at the hands of Absalom. They would have known what it was for those years for Absalom to have been in exile and then for him to be in Jerusalem, but not in the king's presence. They, they would have perhaps had fears and worries and concerns like Joab for the future of the kingdom. And so for them to see Absalom come before the king and to see the king kneel down and to, to kiss his son, they probably would have looked at that and thought, look, that the king and his son have reconciled. That this is good news for the kingdom. Finally, there is peace. Perhaps Joab, the, the one who, at the beginning of this chapter, hatched the scheme with the intention of getting to this point. Joab, who desired for David and his son to reconcile, Joab would have been there as well. He's the one who arranged the meeting. And perhaps in that moment, as Joab witnesses this, he's thinking the same thing. David and Absalom have reconciled. David's house is at peace. The kingdom is in good hands. And maybe even David's heart in this moment has been softened a bit towards his son. David, who likely would have been thinking about his predecessor Saul and how none of Saul's sons would ever sit on the throne. And perhaps at this point, David is beginning to wonder about that covenant God made with him and whether any of his sons would sit on the throne is so much tragedy and chaos has come to his household because of his own sin perhaps in this moment David's heart is softened towards Absalom and perhaps even David is thinking perhaps there's room now for my son and I to reconcile and there's hope for the kingdom but as Absalom bowed his head before the king and the king kissed Absalom you can almost hear the narrator's voice in the background saying Absalom's come home, but David and Absalom have not reconciled. And that becomes abundantly clear as you read the next verse, and the next chapter, and the next chapters. That whatever took place at the end of chapter 14 was an appearance, was a portrayal, but it wasn't genuine reconciliation. The question is, why wasn't it? And the answer is this, point three. Genuine reconciliation requires repentance and forgiveness. Genuine reconciliation requires repentance and forgiveness, both of which are absent from this chapter. 
but they're not absent from the Word of God. In fact, many years later, we read in Luke 15 that Jesus will tell the story of another father and son. And there are some similarities in that the son in the story that Jesus tells, he acts wickedly. He sins greatly. He flees in his shame. And there is separation between he and his father. He tells that story in Luke chapter 15. I'll read it to you now. Jesus said there was a man who had two sons, and the younger of them said to his father, Father, give me the share of property that is coming to me. And he divided his property between them. Not many days later, the younger son gathered all he had and took a journey into a far country. And there he squandered his property in reckless living. And when he had spent everything, a severe famine arose in that country, and he began to be in need. So he went and hired himself out to one of the citizens of that country, who sent him into his fields to feed pigs. And he was longing to be fed with the pods that the pigs ate, and no one gave him anything. But when he came to himself, he said, How many of my father's hired servants have more than enough bread? But I perish here with hunger. I will arise and go to my father, and I will say to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and before you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. Treat me as one of your hired servants. And he arose and came to his father. But while he was still a long way off, his father saw him and felt compassion. And he ran and embraced him and kissed him. And the son said to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and before you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. But the father said to his servants, Bring quickly the best robe and put it on him. Put a ring on his hand and shoes on his feet. And bring the fattened calf and kill it. And let us eat and celebrate. For this my son was dead. He's alive again. He was lost and he is found. And they begin to celebrate. What, what a contrast we see here. What a, a different picture we see in Luke 15 compared to 2 Samuel 14. 2 Samuel 14, there, there, there's no repentance. There's no humility. There's no brokenness. We learn more about Absalom's appearance than we do about his heart. He seems to be proud and prideful. And David, the, the father, there's no compassion, there's no mercy, there's no forgiveness. He, he has missed out completely on a foundational principle of God's relationship with man that we are to forgive as we've been forgiven. And David has been forgiven much. And yet he will not forgive his son. And because Absalom does not repent and turn from his sin and acknowledge that he commanded the murder of his brother, that he doesn't deserve to be called the son of the king any longer. He will not repent. And because David will not show compassion and mercy and forgive, there will be no reconciliation between the two and there will be no peace in David's house. But Jesus says there's a better way. And that better way gives us hope today, friends. Because it helps us to see how we, who have sinned greatly, how we, 
who deserve to be exiled from the kingdom, how we who have behaved in rebellion against our king, it tells us, Jesus says in this story, he tells us how we might genuinely be reconciled. See, we're, we're the prodigal. We're, we're the sons. We're the one who has rebelled in our sin. And Jesus says, if we will turn as this son and repent, then we will meet the embrace of the Father. And this is a genuine embrace. This is not for show. No, this is genuine. This is true reconciliation. And it comes when there's repentance and when there's forgiveness. And so, friends, that's where our hope lies today. We see an example before us in 2 Samuel 14. One we can learn from, but certainly not one to follow. But it points us straight to Luke 15 and reminds us of our Heavenly Father. It reminds us of our King Jesus. It reminds us that Christ has gone before us and he has prepared a place for us. He has readied the welcome home sign. He secures our place in heaven. And he calls us to trust in him, follow him, and to walk by faith. And that's our call this Lord's Day and each Lord's Day. So if you would stand together with me as we pray to that end that we will indeed walk by faith and not by sight and endure until the end. Father, we thank you for your word. And we thank you that in the midst of an example like 2 Samuel 14 of a father and son and sin and chaos and a lack of reconciliation, we thank you that in the midst of that example, we can still have hope because our hope comes through Christ. We thank you that a better king than David came. And we thank you that Jesus, our King, has made a way for us to be reconciled to you. But Lord, we will not be reconciled to you if we will not repent. We will not experience genuine reconciliation if we're not forgiven. And so, Father, I pray that in this moment, in this response to your word, that you would help each of us to see, is there a sin we need to repent of this morning? Is there forgiveness we need to offer to another? Are we lacking genuine reconciliation with you or with someone else because of our refusal to repent or to forgive? I pray you'd make that clear and that through the power of your Holy Spirit that we would respond in the right way. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Church family and guests, we're going to offer now an opportunity to respond to God's Word. We're going to respond through singing, and as we sing and as we worship, we're going to be reminded that, that, that Christ is the one who's made it possible for us to be reconciled to God, that He has gone before us. He's our forerunner, and He makes it possible for us to come before the throne of God. As we sing and as we worship, we invite you to sing and worship. We invite you to repent, to pray, and if the Lord's leading, we invite you to come that I might counsel with you if if the Lord's leading you to respond to the gospel of our Lord Jesus, to in obedience be baptized, to start the process of joining this church family, or if you just need someone to pray with you. And we invite you to come as we all sing before the throne of God.